Chapter Five of A Queen by Ottilie Wildermuth, translated by Unknown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Esterbin Simonides. Chapter Five, The Discovery. The picnic set out, and Maggie proceeded to dress herself. No small business this time, at least. She had already washed herself so clean that one would have supposed she meant it to last for a year. She had brushed and braided her hair until not one stray hair could be discovered, and the smooth bands that were passed behind her ears looked like folds of satin. But just as she came to the last ornament, it struck her for the first time that she ought to keep close to her country dress. It was very silly in her to attempt to dress like a town lady. That might seem like a mean imitation, while the other was neat and simple, and so she dressed herself as usual. She could not have looked prettier than she did when she walked into the old man's room in the clean, dark Sunday gown, with the little cap in its band upon her glossy hair, the long, rich braids of which hung down her back, the neckband fastened round her throat, and her fresh, rosy, innocent face lighted up with those great, clear brown eyes. Even the old doctor, fastidious as his anxiety had made him, looked at her with perfect satisfaction, and felt in his heart that even a countess might feel proud of her. They set out, Maggie's heart constantly breathing the unuttered prayer, O oh Lord, do thou lead and guide me, and at last reached the fine hotel in which the countess lived. Maggie's heart beat fast as she stood in the ante-room, waiting for admission, but at last the door opened, and they were told to enter, for the lady was within. Here, your highness, is the girl of whom I spoke, said the stately doctor, leading in the trembling Maggie. I have the honor to present her with my most humble respects, and he hurried off as fast as he could, though the countess called to him to stay. He thought an interview of this kind should take place without witnesses. The countess, a stately dame some fifty years old, robed in a dress of rich blue satin, sat in an easy chair, and greeted the girl with a kind welcome. Maggie trembled from excitement in every limb, and the good countess, pitying her agitation, said gently, "'Sit down, my child, sit down, and tell me if these things are really yours.' "'Really and truly, lady,' replied Maggie, solemnly. "'And were they given you by your mother? "'What was her name?' asked the lady. "'Christine Hiller and von Velberg,' replied Maggie. "'Did you ever know her? "'Where did she die?' asked the lady. "'I can hardly remember much about her now,' said Maggie. "'She lived at service somewhere, far off, "'and soon after her return she became blind "'and lost her health entirely.' She used to spin for the farmer and his wife at the Tannenhof, the pine-tree farm, and after her death they took me. Did she never tell you anything of her master and mistress? No, not to me. Granny at the Tannenhof said that she had once said her master and mistress had not treated her well, but that was all. No wonder she thought so, said the countess, her eyes filling with tears. Dear child, I was that mistress. You were the child of most worthy parents, and the blessing of their fidelity shall rest on you. Maggie looked at the lady with a feeling of great relief, though matters had turned out so differently from what she had expected. Now listen to me, said the lady, and I will tell you all about it. But it is a long story. My husband was in the army and absent a good deal. I was living here when your mother came into my service, and her faithfulness and devotion soon attached me to her strongly. The death of a brother made my husband heir to some property in Bavaria, and he got leave of absence and went to visit it. He shook as his attendant a worthy soldier named Hillerin, a man who had long served him faithfully, and I took your mother to wait on me. 
Hilleran proved as useful on the estate as he had been in the camp or field, and affection sprung up between him and your mother, but the projected marriage was long delayed from their unwillingness to leave us. But they were both getting towards middle age, and at our persuasions the wedding at last took place. They went to live in a neat little house that my husband had built for them, cultivated a bit of ground of their own, and gave great assistance in the care of the estate. One year after that I held you at the baptismal font, and hung round your neck the amber neckband that you have brought back to me. About this time my husband was persuaded to take part in the Russian war, from which no one from the beginning boded any good, but he was fond of military glory, and Hillerin determined to go with him. Your worthy father had no other object than to be near, and watch over his master and friend. I gave the estate in charge to a competent person, and went to Munich, taking with me your mother and yourself. Your excellent mother never seemed to me like a servant, and we shared together our hopes and fears. They had left us in June. In December my husband returned, sick, discouraged, and alone. Through all the perils of that fearful war, your father had stood with unshaken fidelity beside him. One night they were obliged to stay in a miserable cabin. The fire went out. My husband, benumbed with cold and hunger, was indistinctly aware, like someone in a dream, of having a skin wrapped round him. It was your father, who had for his sake taken the last covering from his own body. In the morning the Count awoke, refreshed from a comfortable sleep. But your father was in that deeper sleep that has no awakening. He was frozen stiff. He had given up his very life for his master. Faithfully, then, we promised his sorrowing wife never to desert her or her child, but to repay to them, as far as God should give us the ability, the generous fidelity of the husband and father. One trouble seldom comes alone. We were on the point of setting out for Italy, whither my husband was going for the recovery of his broken health when my two little daughters were taken ill with smallpox. I immediately gave permission to such of our servants as were afraid of the disease to leave the house, and all availed themselves of it but your mother, who insisted on remaining. My time was so entirely taken up in the care of my husband that I was obliged to leave the children entirely to her, and she never left them, though still overwhelmed with grief for the death of your father. You, who were then a delicate child, were confided to the care of a worthy woman, and thus preserved from the infection. My little Emily died in her arms. The handkerchief with which she had wiped the death sweat from her face she kept as a remembrance of her. Clara, my youngest, thanks to her care and God's blessing upon it, recovered, and then preparations were made as rapidly as possible for the journey to Italy. The very evening before we were to start, your mother sickened. We were to leave at daybreak the next day, and the necessary passports and so on rendered necessary by the unsettled state of the country having all been made out and forwarded the state of affairs altogether made it impossible to delay our housekeeper who was the only one of our attendants to remain behind was a woman in whom i had always had the most unbounded confidence and to her care i gave my poor christine with the strictest injunctions to give her the same care and attention that she would have given me and with the same disregard of expense. Above all, if she grew at any time dangerously ill, we were to be immediately informed of it, and if, on the other hand, she recovered, we were to be notified as soon as she was in a condition to come to us. For a long time I heard nothing from her, and my husband was so ill that I scarcely 
dared leave his bedside, so I could not make any very strict inquiries. The first leisure I had I wrote to you, the housekeeper, and received in reply the information that your mother had died of the smallpox, and that her child had soon followed her from pure weakness and debility. My blind confidence in this woman had prevented me from knowing that covetousness and envy had made her long before your dear mother's most deadly enemy, for she looked upon Christine as one who had usurped the position she herself was entitled to hold in our family. Ignorant of this, however, I received her statement without a doubt, and every tie that bound me to Dresden being thus dissolved, for I had lived in too close a collusion to have made many friendships, I did not care to return and so never had an opportunity of learning the truth of the case. For four years we went from one place to another, through Italy and Switzerland, for my husband's health was then entirely restored. Our hotel in Dresden was, of course, shut up, and the housekeeper dismissed, but before removing the furniture, I resolved to pay it one more visit, to see the grave of my Christine and learn something more of her last days. With great distress, I there heard that the housekeeper, fearing herself the infection, had had her sent to the hospital and by the assistance of the physician who attended her, had made her believe that it was by my husband's orders. That was trouble and grief enough, but I did not think I had any more to hear. Not finding her name on the death list of the hospital, I concluded that it had been an oversight, but certainly believed her dead, for so I had been assured, and we had heard or seen nothing to make me even suspect the contrary. Now, since the old gentleman who has shown himself so deeply interested in you has told me the tale that he has heard from you. It is clear to my mind that, after her recovery in the hospital, she left it and the city in poverty and weakness, sick at heart at our base ingratitude, and went to hide her griefs in her humble birthplace. We had so certainly looked upon her as belonging to us, so little thought of her ever leaving us, that we had not taken care, as we ought to have done, to secure her an independence. This was an unpardonable oversight. If she had but asked us for the least thing, even a spot whereupon to stand her humble dwelling. But she always had a proud heart, and while she believed herself to have suffered at our hands such cruel injustice, she would have nothing to thank us for. Never shall I forgive myself that a friend, for we never looked upon her as a servant, a friend so faithful, so devoted, should have died away from us, and none but God knows how I have longed and prayed for some opportunity of repaying to someone dear to her the bitter wrongs I left her to bear. And now, my prayer has been answered. His hand has in mercy led you to me, and to your dear child will I try to make up for it all. I am besides your godmother, and as my own only daughter is married, who can be so fit a person to take her place in my house and heart as the child of the woman who gave her own health and strength to save hers? Come and stay with me, Margaret. Come and be to me as a daughter, and let me feel that I have still about me one to love and trust. Poor Maggie had forgotten all the dreams of greatness, and was weeping over the sad fate of her parents. But at the same time she thanked God that they had left behind them such remembrances, and felt almost ashamed and humbled that she should have desired, even for a moment, to have been the child of any other mother. How delighted she was that the Countess knew nothing of all the foolish thoughts the good old doctor had put into her head. She scarcely dared look at her, lest she should read her folly in her eye. The countess now promised her that she would come the next day to see the colonel and his wife, and beg them to release her. And then, she said, you shall remain hereafter with me, and may the blessed one help me to take better care of you than I did of your poor mother. 
deeply moved, yet with a heart vastly lighter than when she entered. Maggie returned home, thinking over all that had happened in the course of her young life, and admiring the strange and wonderful, yet very simple ways by which the Father in heaven had worked out the promise made to mothers who, like hers, had tried hard to serve and honor him. Leave thy fatherless children unto me, and I will keep them alive. Not a single day had she ever passed, poor and perilous as she was, but she had had plenty to eat and drink and wear, a good fire when she was cold and a good bed when she was sleepy. It had all seemed to come naturally. But whose hand had provided all these things? So much had happened that morning that she thought it must have been very, very long, and was astonished when she got home to find the servants just serving the dinner. The dear good old doctor, meantime, was restlessly walking up and down in his room, patiently waiting her return. He expected nothing less than that she would come with the old countess in her coach, and already dressed as became her new rank. He wondered whether he would recognize her. Oh, could it be that she would not come home again at all? That she would just send a civil message to Colonel Oberstein and his wife, and in her good fortune forget her old friends? He was still debating the matter in his mind, when he heard her light, quick step upon the stairs, and the same identical Maggie, with his short woolen skirt, trimly dressed feet, and coquettish cap, sprang in, held out her hand to him, and between laughing and crying could not utter one single word. "'Well, now, what is it?' asked the doctor, eagerly. "'I am no countess at all,' laughed Maggie. "'And the fact, the coat of arms, the name?' gasped the old man. Maggie gave another merry laugh. "'My mother was once a servant to the countess, who gave her those things, the handkerchief for herself, the chain to me when I was baptized.' "'Poor child,' said the old man, with a face so long, and a tone of such intense pity, that out came another laugh for Maggie. But he went on, "'And I, old fool as I am, have been stuffing you with all those vain hopes, and doing all I could to make you discontented with this station you have filled so honorably. I have scattered all your pleasant dreams to the wind, and left you nothing but disappointment.' "'No, no, no,' said Maggie, taking his hand soothingly. "'You have no idea what a service you have done me.' And as the old gentleman brightened up at that, she went on to tell him the whole story, just as she had heard it from the countess. And now, you see, she went on, not a word of this should I ever known, but for you, doctor. And now I can say before the blessed father, who knows my heart, that to have heard what I have this day of my parents gives me more happiness than to have found myself a lady. And that I have heard it, I must thank you. Besides, doctor, just figure to yourself now how I should look running about with a long train to my dress, as young ladies do. Why, I'd a hundred times rather sweep the streets with my broom than with my clothes. And the picture seemed so very ridiculous that she laughed merrily. The doctor, delighted at seeing her so cheerful under what he called her disappointments, joined heartily in the laugh, and for a moment they were like two merry children. End of chapter 5